When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today on Quitters, we get to talk to the one, the only, Larry Wilmore. Uh, my brain is blown. That was, he's incredible. I felt two things going on at once. One was, he is very much like, he's like an elder to me, sort of, as a black TV writer. Mm. I felt like almost this sort of deference that I don't usually feel to most guests, which is like, stay out of the way, listen. Like, I felt, you know, kind of like a kid in class a little bit. And the other was, he's a writer and his logic and his brain are so airtight that I couldn't find a way to left hook him. Like, I couldn't find, like, the way to get under, like, to just get under all the theories and stuff. I felt like I was talking to my great uncle, my just my uncle, not great uncle. And also, I couldn't figure out how to get under there. You know what I mean? You said you grew up watching all those shows that he had worked on. And so all he is them. sort of all of them. So he's like an elder in your mind. And for people like me who came to him much later when he was on John Stewart's show, mm-hmm. it it doesn't matter where you're meeting Larry Wilmore on this journey. It, your brain's going to be blown by what he's got to say about everything, work, <laughs> family, everything, money. Yeah. I just really hope that you guys get as much out of this as Chad and I both just did. I think that we're going to be talking about this one for a while. I think something I learned from him in that conversation was I, what I think people are looking for from a writer, I now understand differently. They just want to know that you have the answers. He's clear. He kept saying clarity, 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 clarity. clarity. And he communicates clearly. They just yes. want to like... Even if they can't see what you see, they just want to know that you can see it. And I think he demonstrates that very clearly. Please sit down, get yourself a drink, get (laughs) coffee, a tea, whatever it is, and stare out the window and listen to Larry (laughs) Wilmore because Larry Wilmore is going to blow your mind. Enjoy. Hello, Larry Wilmore. I have had the pleasure of meeting you many times, uh, mm-hmm. virtually. But this is Chad, Chad Sanders, who's in this case, much smarter half, because he, like you, is a writer. <sighs> and I, as anybody who listens to our podcast knows, I think writing is the hardest thing in the whole world. So I revere mm. you both. It's a very masochistic endeavor. Yeah, really? yeah. You have to be uh-huh. masochist. Yeah. It's like, I haven't beaten myself up enough. You know, let me have 
Let me make give myself homework every day of my life. <laughs> but wait, is that true while you're doing it or just like in general? Is the, in general, is the process, is yeah. it thinking about it that's the worst part? It's just is in it general. when it's in general, it's just never oh, good yeah. enough. It's like, why, why did I choose this? It makes no sense. It's torture. You know, there's like the running theory about people who are writers at your level, which is like the very, very, very tippity top, that Whoa. like y'all don't actually sit down in front of a computer and put the you know, do the clickety clack. <laughs> I actually and I actually don't know the and I've worked the with some pretty clack. big writers. You you mm-hmm. really do the clickety clack on the keyboard? Um, I do a combination of things. There are some things that I, I have to sketch out ideas on a legal pad, and I form ideas on a legal pad. I have to write dialogue on a laptop, though. I can't write dialogue huh. on a legal pad. That's just weird to me because there's something about the actual script form that when I'm putting words together and everything, I like the script form. But if I'm coming up with concepts, I don't like to interact with the computer. I like to interact with the legal pad or notebook or that kind of stuff. And that comes from, I started as a stand-up, you know, and I wrote jokes on my legal pad and I came up with ideas when I first started in sitcoms on legal pads and all that kind of stuff. So when you write, just because you mentioned it, when you write dialogue, are you writing as yourself through a character or are you writing as the character? I channel characters is how I write character dialogue. So it's not myself. The character tells me what the words are. I never impose it on the character. So I su- I'm surprised many times by what the characters say. I go, oh, that was a good line. You're mm. funny. You're a funny character. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't, you can't take credit and you can't take the blame. It's the character. Yeah, there are some things that I think about, but I think about in terms of the character, but I don't. I shape action myself and I shape scenarios and that, but I don't shape dialogue. I give myself up to the characters for the actual dialogue of things. I know it sounds weird, especially if, if, if people aren't writers. It's, it's a process, though, for me, because uh, I'm channeling something then and I'm, I'm channeling the nature of that character and who the character is and all that stuff. It's almost an acting thing, honestly. It's like a, an improv acting exercise, you know, when you're when you're inside of a character, you, you can only say certain things in certain ways because that's what the character would do, you know? Chad, it's so interesting to me that you asked that question. So is this a writer thing? Like, you knew to ask that question. I, I was like, what what kind of question is that? I'm trying to learn. I mean... It's my own particular Larry's thing. Larry's a big dog. Yeah, I'm trying to, like, actually know the answer. I, I didn't know that that was a question to ask. Well, I'm curious. I have to say, Chad, it comes... Like, I didn't learn that. It, it's more instinctual for me. Like, when I'm... One of my first sitcoms was Sister, Sister, right? Mm -hmm. And I always did impressions and characters in my act when I did stand-up and growing up. And it's kind of how I related to characters when I first started character work as an actor was I started character work through mimicry. That's That was Uh my first stab. And and a lot of actors start with mimicry as something, Mm -hmm. whether it's... Now, some of the mimicry... I'm going off a little bit, but I'll come back. Trust me. Some, Some mimicry in acting is behavior mimicry, mm. you know? So it's the way someone holds something might, you might be mimicking, you know, the way someone presents themselves or the nature of their voice. It's not necessarily an impression. Mimicry is, is, has a little different connotation, especially in acting. A lot of the, I was a big fan. I studied acting in, in college. Theater was my major. And I was always a, I think I was more of a fan of the English style of acting than the modern American style, right. probably because it was harder for me to access things through the regular ways of sense, memory, and some of those things, which 
are more American and that like, mm. remember when you were this and that. It's like, I don't yeah. remember that crap. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, but for me, if I put a coat on, it it made my behavior differently. Or if mm. I, you know, I, I forced myself into certain actions, that triggered me emotionally faster than since memory did. So I thought there are many ways to get into because what you want is an emotional truth in, in what yeah. you're doing. How you get to that emotional truth is up to you. Many different ways, right, Julian? Mimicry was a way that I got to emotional truth, you know, by taking myself out of it and becoming someone else, right? Mm. That's why that style works for me, you know? So, so in writing, so going back to Sister Sister, was one of my first things. Like when we would be pitching dialogue, I would actually become the character while I was pitching. Ray. Now, come on, Ray, you can't talk to me like that. I am not going to, you know, and I would be, <laughs> I would be pitching as the character in the rhythm of the character. Like mm. this only, this character is the only one that can say this type of thing in this type of rhythm. And so, so when I'm writing, I have, I'm writing in rhythms of characters and that kind of stuff, you know, in dialogue. So it's not just a stale line of a response. It's, it's a full-blooded three-dimensional response of a character. The characters are coming, are they coming from actual people that you know in real life? Are they mashups? Are they mm -hmm. completely invented? They're usually composites of people that I've either observed or looked, you know, seen or that type of stuff. But they're usually composites of something. I go to the well for some things and put other things on it, people that I know a little bit better. But sometimes it's just an observed thing that I want to do, or it's an energy. Like if I want somebody who's full, you know, where it has a certain attitude or that type of thing, then I'll be coming from that type of attitude. You know, like there's this one, I wrote this one uh, spec script once. It was one of my favorites. It was called Fat Man, Skinny Wife. And it was my take on the sitcom. You know? Fat Man, it, Skinny <laughs> Wife. <laughs> yes. It was like a satire of the sitcom, you know. And Fat yeah, Man, yeah, Skinny yeah, Wife. totally. Kind of and for me, it was the black sitcom, you know. I wrote this at the same time when, Tina had just written 30 Rock and Aaron Sorkin had just done West Studio Wing. 66. Oh, Studio 360. Yeah, yeah. So all of those scripts were done at the same time. So I was the odd man out because they were all like, like uh, looking behind the scenes, you know. Right. Good, but, I, but I was always very proud of that script. And it, it actually did well for me just as a spec, you know, because it it uh, ended up being sold to Fox, but they didn't do it because it was really about them. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of the characters was a studio exec, and I was completely channeling one of the many of the studio execs that I knew. So I was channeling their energy, and the thing I was channeling was the acting like something like they're giving something to you, but they're really keeping it for themselves. So that mm. simple thing was character for me. So I'll give you an example. So, so should we uh, should we give you the notes here, or or do you want us to call us or or call you with the notes? Uh, why don't you just call us with the notes? Okay, we'll just call. You know, why don't we just give them to you right now? They'll just be better. <laughs> like you know, motherfucker, why did you ask? You know, <laughs> for, you already know the answer. But that's a dynamic. So that's not a character I know. But that's a dynamic. It's a dynamic mm -hmm. where they have to win in a certain way. So now mm -hmm. when I'm pitching that character, that character has these microaggressions of carving out where they're mm -hmm. always, they always have to win. And so that's a point of view, right? So, so I'm not pitching somebody I know, but I'm pitching a dynamic that I know. So that's a different way that I might write character. And that will make us laugh because we're we're expecting a certain dynamic from that right. character that we yeah. know that character is going to bat something down in a certain way. <laughs> so so that's going to make us laugh. So that's how I interact with 
comedy and character and expectations. If you're starting from scratch and and, and doing a spec and you, you're you creating yeah. these characters just to shoehorn that we, we are the sure. quitters. Do you ever have Absolutely. to quit on a character? Do you ever have to quit? Like, when do you That's know? When is somebody not talking to you? Talking about you like, mm -hmm. I'm channeling you and you are not coming through. I, I got to make a pivot. I got to quit. I got to change something. That's a good question. It By the time I get to writing it, I've already abandoned it, I think. Ah. Because if, if I can't sketch it in the description of it, it means I'm not connecting to it in some way. So okay. when I'm pitching, by the time I'm pitching it, it's, it's the, those decisions have been made. Uh -huh. So because when I, when I pitch something, I'm giving you a full account of who these characters are and I have uh -huh. examples of their dialogue. I, I tell you how they interact with people. I already know what those dynamics are. So if, if there's a block in that, that character is not going to make it to the pitch. Right. Yeah. And that's Does this mean before. you're a terrible col collaborator? <laughs> no. <laughs> because, like, if you, if you are the one who, if you're, like, can channel all these characters and you know what they're mm. going to say and exactly that, and someone else's process is different and you're running a room, you know, mm. how do you accept somebody? You're like, no, 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 no. That's not what, that's not what Jackie well, would say. it gives me a very good way to say if something works or not, or something ah. should go in the script, which as a showrunner is more of my job than to be pitching, you know? Right. So right. now I'm more like, you know, big top ringmaster, you know? And mm. what I try to encourage is writers to always write from character and don't try to outsmart yourself up here, try to jump in here. I always make those distinctions, you know, mm -hmm. and really write from that point of view. And once everybody's doing that, it's, you know, those aren't really considerations, just something either seems appropriate or not. But it's interesting how many writers abandon character and they get to, in, I call it intellectual with their writing. In other words, they try to outsmart themselves. They try to be too clever by means. Mm. And I always say, no, you want to do the opposite. You want to, you want to be more human in situations and you want to be more real in situations and less clever. Some people who listen to this show won't know what a showrunner is. And oh, yeah, that's right. I, I was starting to noodle, like, to define that term. But I should just ask sure. you, how do, how do you define that term? So a showrunner really is an administrative position as well as a creative position. It's both of those things. From an administrative standpoint, primarily the writer's room is the prime concern. Getting the scripts out on time and making all the, the major decisions that go with producing a television show from wardrobe to makeup to all the different departments to casting and making all the, the decisions have to go through that showrunner about the making of a television show. Do you prefer show running or actual writing? Oh, show running. Show I running, you producing. like it. Oh, producing to me is fun. Writing is torturous, but producing <laughs> is fun. But I don't mind, I like writer's room. Writer's rooms are fun, you know, but producing is my favorite thing because I love figuring out the puzzle. And I, and I love collaborating, Julie, as you know, even our short yeah, collaboration we, was so yeah, much fun. You're a blast. I just meant as far as writing, like actual writing. Yeah, I would rather be producing something in an ideal situation than alone by myself writing something. Yeah. But I recognize that I do enjoy coming up with ideas. So let me put it like this. I love creating and starting shows way more than I would want to run a show. Like I'm ah, not the person. Okay. So, so I'm not the person you bring in for third season of show to run it. That I would right. not like to do. No, to but, come into someone else's show. It's already been going, even if it's successful. Because I like invention. I like creating 
and invention and coming up with things. You are such a fully formed person. This is like a masterclass. Like you know exactly where you are right now a, a and what you're doing. No, but I mean like, exactly. So if, if you would indulge us in taking us back to more of the tier part, of the past, a lot of this learning, we, we get these files, we mm-hmm. get information on you. And and one of the things that we thought files. was super interesting, files, he calls it a dossier. Every time he says it, I laugh because it sounds like we're in the CIA. <laughs> but mm-hmm. you, what jumped out at something that both of us were really interested in was mm-hmm. your leaving or being asked to leave Bernie Mac mm-hmm. as as it doesn't square with this person that I know and that I wish right. I to right now that I'm like, but this is this, this is, this right. is the Larry Wilmore. So what was that time like for you and how formative was it in, in yeah. so far as it, its own kind of a quit? Really quickly before you answer that, mm-hmm. and I, because that is the question, I want to just contextualize a little bit more for, for audience. We have a lot of guests come on this show who, frankly, I have never heard of until the week that they come on. <laughs> when I looked at your dossier, and it's like Sister Sister, the Bernie Mac show, the Jamie Foxx show, Live in Color. It's like these are actually parts of my identity, all mm. of these shows, you know? And then, you know, you co-created Insecure. I just rolled off writing for rap shit, Issa's new mm. show. Like you're you're a big deal. And especially oh, a big deal shit. for me. Yeah, no problem. And I'm not saying that to be charming, but I am saying <laughs> it to say, like, you got fired. And mm-hmm. uh Absolutely. you know. Yeah, you got fired off yeah. of a show that you created, a mm-hmm. big show, a very, mm-hmm. a very important show. Right. How did how did they fire you? Well, let's talk about the story of the Bernie Mac show. Which, uh, how much time do we have exactly? Well, here? no, we want to find <laughs> out like how does that turn in the road? Okay. Lead to you being this Larry Wilmore because that that had to be formative in some way. Let me give you some context for it first. Okay, so. Even though, you know, Hollywood is this liberal bastion of whatever, (laughs) progressive creatures or whatever, there's always been a prejudice against Black writers, Black shows that I've always been keenly aware of, even from when I started. And that prejudice is that we're not as good, Mm. you know. (laughs) Um, Black writer, I'm keeping it 100% real with you. I was going to say, say it more bluntly, damn. Yeah, so (laughs) I remember the day when Black scripts were put in their own pile, you know. Yeah. writers and that sort of thing. Black shows were called black shows and they were thought of lesser than, okay? Mm -hmm. There were some exceptions, but they didn't consider them, nobody considered the Cosby show a black show. And by the way, Cosby show was run by white people. There were a couple of breakthroughs in that, the first being in Living Color, which I was lucky enough to work on, run by a black person, created by a black person, was considered a quality show. Listen to the words that I'm using. Most black shows were not considered quality shows. They were considered funny, but we mm. never got to have the patina of Emmy worthy, right. critical darling. Those mm. words weren't used. They just weren't mm. used, you know. Even a show as as popular as Fresh Prince of Bel Air, who was never a critical darling, you know. Mm. Once again, that show run by white people, not black mm. people. Okay. It was very rare for a show run by a black person, starring black people, to have critical acclaim. Just didn't happen. Keenan Ivory Wayans, first one to really do that. You know, that was an mm-hmm. Emmy Award winning show in Living Color. Guys, I'm telling you, this is a breakthrough, okay? You have to know that this is how television was. I lived through that. So in the mm-hmm. 90s, a black writer could not get a job on a white show, a show that had predominantly white cast. Black writers, we could not get jobs on that shows. Any white writer could get a job, could get a job on a 
predominantly black show or they could mm-hmm. run the show. Didn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, we could get jobs on the black shows. But if there were black characters on some white shows, mm-hmm. sometimes there'd be a black writer to help with the voice, which is kind of condescending. Like, what, I, what do you kinda. mean the voice? Right. OK, <laughs> so I'm saying this very plainly to you. So, you know, the context by which I'm yeah. going to the you. story. That's how we were treated. OK, so when I was on the Jamie Foxx show, I remember working with Janine Sherman on that show. And we were very frustrated having these conversations. We used to have them all the time. She said, Larry, how come there's no like black Seinfeld, you know, no show that's considered smart. And that, yeah. You know, yeah. and I said, Janine, because you haven't written it yet, you know, and she was like, oh, and then I was like, oh, fuck, actually, <laughs> I, I haven't written it yet. <laughs> you know, I thought, Larry, who are you to say that? You know, and I thought I I want to really try my hardest. So they have to reckon with our material and not just praise it as being entertaining. So the first show I did was called The, the uh, PJs. It was an animated show mm-hmm. with, with Danny Murphy. Steve Townsend's co-created it. And we got nominated for Emmys, won a couple of Emmys. And I thought, that's what I'm talking about. So when Steve and I finished with the PJs, we both left at the same time. We, we co-created the show, you know, with Eddie. And Steve and I were equal in the show. I even brought him on it. So Steve got like this huge overall deal with uh, 20th, I remember. I couldn't get anything, guys. I swear to you. Every meeting I took said, oh, we love Larry. He's great. But we just like to see him do something on his own, by himself. Steve didn't have to do something on his own, you know, but as the black writer, suddenly I had to do something on my own. Like I oh had to my prove God. myself, you know, and all, all I ended up getting was a, a script commitment from Regency Television. I wasn't able to get that kind of deal. So I turned that script commitment into the Bernie Mac show, basically. Mm. And, you know, the way that I formed it, I was looking at reality television. There's a show called 1900 House where people had to Live like it was 1900. In, yeah, I remember. In, in, yeah. Yes, it was in Edwardian, in Edwardian England. And I, I thought it was fascinating. It would be interesting to do a show where we were kind of observing people and had maybe had cameras set up and we were kind of observing the action rather than the traditional multi-camera type show yeah. where that's yeah. all that was on television at the time. When I saw Kings of Comedy, I thought, oh, if I did a show like that and it was about Bernie Mac <laughs> taking care of his sister's kids who were in drugs, that's an emotional hook. Yeah. That So it's not just this, clever thing. There's an emotional hook, you know, that gets us in there. And I pitched this idea to Bernie and he loved it, thought it was good. We pitched it, sold it and all that stuff. But I, it took me forever to figure out how to crack it, you know, but I ended up cracking it. And I, I'm telling you all this so you know, this is the amount of work I went into figuring out this show. This is significant artistry. Right. Yeah. This is not right. like copy not just paste. slapping something together. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, but all the notes I got when I was doing the Bernie Mac show were based on the other form of sitcom, the multicam. Right. Which, by the way, I know that the multicam is based on farce. I'm the theater student. Right. You know, it's, it's primarily based on farce, you know. And a proscenium stage. Correct. Yeah, exactly. It's a theatrical convention that you're mm-hmm. dealing with there. It's, its roots are in theater, you know, where I'm doing something that's filmic. You know, there's mm-hmm. a different type of thing that I, you can't give notes based on a theatrical thing. Mm-hmm. But they kept doing that and wanted that, you know, and they would say, you know, like, the wife, you know, it'd be great if, if we knew what kind of like line she was doing, what kind of joke, you know, like on, and they would give me an example, like on Roseanne, you know, she said a certain thing. I said, the woman that I've written is just a real woman who speaks like real people, real maybe. Real people, right. <laughs> like, she, doesn't she doesn't have speak, a tagline. She does not speak in <laughs> jokes, guys. She doesn't speak in jokes. Yeah. It doesn't mean she's not funny. So the fight was always, 
you know, not acknowledging this form. And they treated me like I was incompetent. And they even felt I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I wasn't running the show properly. So this was the what was being said over there. Even though, Julie, we ended up winning a Peabody, Emmy Award, Critics' Choice Awards. Oh, yeah, well, you won everything. Critics' Choice Awards. We won every award you could possibly win. And every time they won it, it did not prove to them mm. that I knew what I was doing. It was the opposite. They, they thought I was ruining this thing that somehow got made with me there. I don't know. <laughs> oh, my God. So that's wow. what I was up against. In- and so the night that I won the Emmy... For a pilot script, which a, a black writer had never won, I was the first black person to win a solo Emmy in that writing category, right? Quinta is the second solo person to win. Mm. So it's been 20 years wow. for a solo person to win that award. You know, So the night that I won the Emmy, the head of, of Fox said to someone who I knew in the bathroom, well, I guess we can't fire him now. I guess oh. we can't fire him now. Oh I guess, Julie, <laughs> and, I and guess yet. we can't fire him now. Like, that's what was said, as opposed to, wow, this is great. Maybe we were wrong, and he does know what he's talking about because he's taking us on this journey, and this journey is paying off not just in a small scale, on a major scale. How about this, Julie? You know, Black shows never get credit for anything. We're Fox Network. We have a Black show that's an Emmy Award-winning show. (laughs) You know, we're proud of that. You know, thank Mm -hmm. you, Larry Wilmore, for doing that. Thank you. you. Thank you. Yes, exactly. And Larry, Um, that sentiment was be just plainly because you were the black face around the building or was there like some it was ego it was ego driven no it was ego driven the person who was running that because it wasn't everybody there Mm. who was the head of the uh it was sandy grusha at the time he's not in the business anymore i wasn't unique he fought with everybody you know Mm. he was just jerk but in my particular case i i've won a couple of battles creativity battles or whatever and he just always took that personally, like he didn't get his way because I didn't do something that he wanted me to do. So he just, he always kind of had it in for me in that kind of sense. And, you know, they just, you know, did that type of thing. And at the end of the second season, you know, they just, I just got fired really for no reason. How do you get fired from a show running position? Did an executive call? Did your agent call? Um, I think it was my agent. They didn't talk to me directly, of course. But it's more than that. You created the show. You correct. created yeah. the show. So you were going to continue to collect a paycheck. They really wanted you gone, even if it cost them money. That y- that feels yes. weird. It, that feels like extra, extra, like, fuck you to me. Oh, it was, you know. Yeah, it's like an extra uh, fuck you. Oh, thousand percent. But in the press, I always took the high road. In fact, uh, I said to Entertainment Weekly, I said, well, we had creative differences. I was creative and they were different. <laughs> was kind of what I said. <laughs> I mean, you know what, Larry? I, it's like the middle road. It's not low. Well, I have to tell you, Julie, it was a low blow. They took that show that I created. I didn't know if I would have a career after that. You know, I got fired from this thing that I loved. I It was one of my lowest moments. I was also, my marriage was going through a tough stage mm. at that point too. So that was going on. I was at the lowest point I've ever been in my career, guys. I didn't know if I would work again. Mm. I didn't know if I could get hired for something. How old were you at that point? 40, 41. So I got so much love from the industry, from my fellow writers of all levels. I went, I was in New York and Stephen Bochco comes up to me, who I was a huge fan of, hugs me, <laughs> you know, and says, oh my God, Larry, I love you. He says, don't worry about those fucking assholes, Larry. You know, you're great. You're going to bounce back. And I didn't know Stephen Bochco. I'm like, I was a huge <laughs> fan. I mean, LA Law, all these things, you know, he's a genius. 
And the outpouring of love from people who I respected, you know, all kinds of different names. Everybody, even Carl Reiner, like, sent me a note. James L. Brooks, so many people who have been in the position I have been in and things like that had happened to them or those sort of things. And they admired my work. They were fans of what I did. They recognized that we did something special on that show Mm. and that there was this injustice. I guess I'm wondering how, where did the change come? And I'm hearing you didn't really have to change. You just needed somebody to recognize your vision. Well, it took a while. I was, I really you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I remembered that I ended up going to help Greg Daniels in the office. And uh-huh. Greg Greg was a buddy of mine. He was doing King of the Hill when I was doing the PJs. And the office kind of really picked me off my feet at that point, because I remembered that the whole reason I wanted to write in the first place was to create a space for myself on television. I felt mm-hmm. like Hollywood didn't quite get me. I was a different type of comedian. And when I was at the office, I did the part of Mr. Brown in one of the episodes. <laughs> and Ken Klopp has directed that episode, by yeah. the way. And Ken insisted that I play that part, he and Greg. And it ended up being this thing that made me remember that, oh, you know what? I shouldn't forget about, I wanted, this is what I wanted to do was perform, create a space uh-huh. for myself is the reason why I first started writing. And shortly after I did that a year later, I was on The Daily Show and I was on a whole new right. path and whole new thing of a bigger thing than just running TV shows. You know, there was something else that was out there for me that was part of it. But it took being knocked down off that oh. perch and reminding myself the things that were important to me, keeping it yeah. real. <laughs> you know, I, my marriage lasted another like seven, eight years, which is great. We worked on it. You know, we ended up getting actually another 10 or 11 years, actually. Wow. You know, we mm-hmm. had... Had some really good times, ups and downs. We got divorced, but you know what? We were in it, you know, so yeah. I don't regret that. So there was a lot of of good that ended up coming out of being batted down like that. But I, I wanted to tell the whole story because it was more than just getting fired. To me, I wanted yeah. to explain the, the culture yeah. of what I was up against. For people to say that I was incompetent, I'm like, you could say that you don't like the show or that yeah. the show's not performing, which it was. Mm-hmm. Or that it didn't get good reviews, which it did. Yeah. Or, that it did or that it didn't get acclaim, which it did. Which it did. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, I mean, so maybe you don't like it. All right, fine. But you can't say I'm incompetent. Like, how dare you say that? If you'd stayed then, and that had never happened, I mean, you probably, we might not have had the pleasure of, because I know you mm-hmm. because of The Daily Show. That's how right. I, you first came to my I attention. found a whole new audience. And right, I was Julie. like, yeah. oh, who is this guy? Then I started following you. And then I started right. going, oh, what's he doing? And, and so you may have gone on to create 10 more brilliant shows. You might not have been on my radar as a, as mm-hmm. a viewer in the same way. And I'm, so for that, I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. I might be out of showbiz by now. You never know. There is a certain burnout that can happen with those kind of jobs too. You know, you can go down those roads and you get caught up in it. And who knows? There's there's expiration dates for all of these things, you know? But for me, I had to, rem- it forced me to remember the whole reason why I did it in the first place was to create right. a space for myself as a performer. And God bless The Office and The Daily Show it gave me a whole new career. And what you just said, that there's always expiration dates for these things, which Julie says in mm-hmm. different words sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm still very new to this mm-hmm. whole game. And a part of what I struggle with in it is I can never feel safe. I, I mm-hmm. never feel safe. I never feel like I'm on solid ground necessarily. Mm-hmm. 
where you're at now, which is so such a far departure from where I'm at, are you able to feel safe? Like, do you or do you still wonder well, if the axe is coming at any given moment? No, I've never viewed that relationship. You know, let me put it like this, Chad. When I decided to do this for a living, I considered myself a success. Success mm. was never a destination for me. Once I decided to do this full time, and I'm talking about the early days of stand-up comedy, you huh. know, when I make $30,000 a year, maybe not that much mm. money. I was a success. Mm. Okay, and let me be clear about that. Success is not a destination. That can't be taken away. I'm already a success, you know. And you didn't tie that not tied to financial success at all. Correct. That's correct. That's that's in a separate category. Finance is in a separate category. There's a lot of ways to make money. It doesn't have to just be the showbiz. I don't have to tie my financial well-being just to showbiz, you know. And I've always had financial goals and that type of thing. And showbiz is one of those things sometimes that can happen. But I've always separated those, you know, because if all I did was, you know, work with some people in some community theater and it brought me fulfillment and I wasn't making that money, I mean, that's still successful as far as I'm concerned, you know. It's, It's the expression and all that. So, but there's always... That feeling that you're talking about, that's never going to go away. We don't know what, how long we get to be in a certain level or point or whatever, or someone's going to buy something from us. But yourself, you can always be expressive and be putting expression down on paper and trying to do things and trying to make it here and there. But there's, there's, those issues are never going to go away. That's profound, and I needed to hear it. How did you develop that point of view? Like, how did you feel that way on the front end when you, like, mm-hmm. is that just who you are? No, it came from, I wrote an essay about this actually for, for LinkedIn. <laughs> this was back in, when I was doing the nightly show, they, President Obama was doing this thing where he was talking about my first jobs in the summer. You know, when I was back as a kid, you know, <laughs> and uh, he was leading and they asked if I would participate in it and talk about your first summer jobs or whatever. But I decided to talk about a job I had when I was in college selling bookstore to door. And it was very informative to me um, when I went into people's homes and I saw so many people who were just unhappy with their lives. It was just interesting to me that how critical some decisions are at certain points in your life. People don't give enough attention to those decisions you make in your early 20s and how important they are to the rest Mm -hmm. of your life. They're so important. When we sold Bookstore to Door, we did like this week of training, like in Nashville, we had all these uh, speakers and everything. And I'll never forget uh, one of the ones that really influenced me. He said, "Uh, most people spend more time planning a two-week vacation than they do planning their lives. And I was like, oh, man. Wow. My my head just went pow, you know. Sure. And so it made me think of of work and career in a different way. And I tell people, I say, I haven't worked in over 30 years. I don't consider what I do work. I knew that success for me was the path, was choosing the right path. Right. You know, what's going to bring happiness and fulfillment? That's how I measure success. You were a really good athlete. Yes. You played college basketball, I believe. Well, I played in high school. I didn't play college, okay. but I, I was good enough to play college, you know, at a at a, maybe Division Two, not Division One. My father played college football and he played semi-pro. I grew up in a sports neighborhood. Sports was huge, you know, and it was very right. competitive. And it was very important to me too, you know. But you stopped. Yes. You stopped playing at, at that high level. Was right. that to make room for these other paths? Absolutely. And did you have that awareness at the time? Absolutely, a thousand percent. Mm. Because I was lucky because... I grew up around elite athletes and I knew uh-huh. what an elite athlete was. And I'm like, I am not that. Oh. <laughs> like, I like, I said, I'm not six, seven with a 45 vertical, you know? Uh-huh. 
That's uh-huh. not me. So you have to make a choice. At a certain point, mm. there's going to be a big separation. Like you said, you could have played in college, but was it the fact that you knew that after college that was going nowhere? Well, for me, it was what am I going to dedicate my life to? You know, and I was like, I'm going to, theater is going to be the thing for me. <laughs> you know, that was the thing. I loved it. You know, fell in love with it at a very young age. And by the inverse, did you have to be around like an elite community of writers and comedians to realize that you could play at that level? Or did you just know? No, no, that that I didn't Uh. know. In fact, I was very intimidated. I grew up in Southern California, so I had proximity to Hollywood and that type of thing. And it was always kind of scary to me and that type of thing. (laughs) And I remember um, I sneaked into the comedy store once to do their open mic night because I was underage. I was maybe 16 or 17. I just did like some impressions because I did a lot of impressions in the States. But I was really doing like a rich little routine for one of his albums or something like that. I didn't know what you were supposed to do. I didn't know you, you were supposed to write material or whatever. Right, you right. know? And so <laughs> I just thought you were supposed to go and make funny. And so I went up in the open mic night and I, I killed, right? Just, just, I mean, got huge laughs and everything. And a person came over to me and said, oh, you were great. We'd love for you to come back and showcase for uh, Mitzi, Mitzi Shore, who was the only one. And I was like, that's great. You know, and I was like, on this cloud, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, this yeah. is great. So two weeks later, you know, I'm coming back for that. And I was sick as a dog. Like I had the flu and everything. And I go on stage and it's the complete opposite. You know, there's not one laugh. You know, <laughs> I'm sweating and no one talks to me after that, you know, and the person who I was supposedly showcasing for, I didn't even see them after a while. You know, they're just nowhere to be found. It was the loneliest feeling in the world. It was just horrible, you know. But when I was there, also, I remember Richard Pryor going by. You know? <laughs> I was up against the wall. Like, oh, my gosh, Richard Pryor. I, I sneaked into the main room, and David Letterman was emceeing in there, you know. I was like, oh, my God, you know, it was so funny. And I had seen him on a couple of things. He didn't have a show yet. But I couldn't believe how funny he was. And I was so intimidated, you guys. It took me three or four years to try stand-up again because I was so intimidated by the level. I saw Michael Keaton doing stand-up in the comedy store. What? Wait, Michael Keaton, Batman, Michael Keaton. Yeah, he did stand-up. I saw Michael recently. I've known him from a couple of things. He was in in Santa Barbara. We were in a grocery store and I was like, Michael, he's hey there. And we, so we talked for about, for about like a half an hour in like a bonds, you know? And I told him, I said, Michael, I used to sneak into the comedy store and I saw you doing stand-up back in the day. And so we were talking about those times and he was a really good stand-up. I believe it. How did you get it together again? How did your confidence together again to say, "Um, no, I'm not walking away from this. This was just a little hiatus. I was determined to do it again. The next time when I did it again, I wrote my own material, you know, Uh and I was expressing myself, which was a little different. And I went to... I didn't go to the comedy store. I went to the Laugh Stop in Newport Beach and I started going to their open mic nights. Right. And I started to develop an act. I would just write jokes every day and try them out at night. <laughs> you know? And you and, got used to not, you got used to them. Some some work, some don't work. And, and that became absolutely. more of a rhythm. Right. But in between that, I was, I was a theater major in school. Right. You know, and I did that and I got a, a couple of breaks that told me, well, maybe I should do the right thing. I got a small part in Facts of Life where it was this kind of recurring role. I did the improvisational theater project, this thing at the Mark Taper Forum. I got my equity card. So I had all these indications that, hey, maybe this is the right thing that you're doing. But but stand-up, I knew I wanted to crack, you know. And doing that, to me, was the thing that really gave me a career because I wasn't beholden to having... I mean, I give... Julie, I give you guys so much credit as actors. I mean, going when you're starting out, 
The audition process is brutal. It's awful. People it's have awful. no idea, right, Julie? They have no, no idea. You are, and you're driving, and, and it's yeah. L.A., and the traffic's hideous, and you will drive an hour to sit in a room with 50 people who look just brutal. like you yes. for one line in a Pringles commercial. <laughs> exactly. And then you get in their mm. car, and you drive to the next brutal. one that's over in Eagle Rock, and you just all you do yeah. is crisscross the town. It's really, it's tough. Actors get more than anybody the amount of rejection that you have yeah. to go through. At least in stand-up, rejection happens on jokes and not necessarily the whole experience, you know? <laughs> so if they don't laugh at a joke, oh, who cares? I got another one, you know? <laughs> they might laugh. So it happens in a different way, you know? To walk away from something that, like, if you grew up in this very, very physical, athletic, like, athlete-driven neighborhood, your dad played, you said your dad played Played college bonds and a little right. bit of semi-pro. Right. right. And you knew it, it was, it's more like what you were walking to than what you were walking away from. Once it's exactly. in the rear of your mirror, you're not feeling it. Not at all. Yeah. Cause wow. I, knew the, I knew the distinction. I knew what it looked like and I wasn't that. So I, I didn't have any delusions or anything about that. But what about your community? What about your family? What did they say to you when you're like, yeah, I'm not going to do this basketball stuff anymore when I go to college? Well, it wasn't so much that. Nobody, nobody expected me to do that. It was more. I was more of an academic star growing up, even though got I was it. a sports star. So okay. I got a scholarship to go to high school. My nickname was the professor growing up, you know. And so they expected me more to have an, a star academic career more than a star sports career. Okay. And that's what I really turned my back on more than anything else. I dropped out of college. You know, I kind of, you know, life was... You dropped out of college? Mm-hmm. And dropped out of school. It's you know. a great quit. Why'd you drop out of college? <laughs> because... I just was ready to join the circus as it, as it were, <laughs> you know, I was ready to do what I wanted to do at that time. Did you get a lot of pushback? Oh, sure. Your family? Absolutely. Somebody got you to go to college. You know, that, this is a long road. It starts in kindergarten. You know, it's like, go, go, go. Like yeah. climbing that ladder. And when you get to the top of the ladder and you go, hey, I'm getting off the ladder. It's right. a lot of people that go, what are you doing? We built this ladder for you. Both of my parents who were divorced at the time said, you know, don't you think you should have something to fall back on? Yeah. And I very calmly said to them both, I said, well, to be honest with you, I don't see my life as a series of fallbacks, but I, I view it as a series of spring forwards. <laughs> you know? So I don't view what, I'm, what I want to do as a series of fallbacks. I, why should I create fallback scenarios? I should create spring forward scenarios for me. You know? And they didn't then say, yeah, well, a college degree would be a great spring forward. Absolutely. And no. they weren't, it's, it's not that they were wrong, but when they first saw me doing stand-up and, you know, headlining clubs, then they kind of accepted, kind of accepted it and kind of that. But they were just being concerned parents, you know. So, oh, of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. But that's a really bold thing. Like you've achieved an enormous amount in your life, them, as have many, many people who don't either go to college or drop out of college, but it's a big deal at the time. How far in were you? I was a self-educator a yeah. lot, Julie. Like I read, I, I remember I would spend more time reading books that weren't in the curriculum than the actual books that were in the curriculum. You know? I believe so I, that. So I wasn't really even doing well in college. I was too distracted by other things. And my home life was not very good at that time. And that requires a whole different conversation. There was a lot going on. That was just not good, you know, for like a long period of time. And um, I, so a lot of it was escape for me, too, you know, and just getting to something that was going to produce some happiness. So it wasn't a very happy period 
for us in the 70s, the Wilmore clan. You sound like a person who feels something as an intuition and then you sort of just move on it. And you don't sound like you have a lot of regrets. I'm wondering, are there any decisions now in your life that are like tormenting at all that are, or, or, or have there been yeah. any recently? I don't have regrets, but I wouldn't say I'm intuition person. I, I'm more of a research person, you know, like I, I really consider thoughtfully. And then what I do is I'm a manifest person is the other thing. Like I'm not a goal setting person. I'm more of a put it out there of what I want to do. And then I kind of, as I say, walk towards that, that type of thing. You know, I mean, there's always things that we wish we had done better and all that stuff. I wish my marriage had worked, you know, Mm. certainly, you know, but it's not like there was something that, man, I just shouldn't have done that. I, I don't feel that way. I feel like, well, you learn from bad decisions as well Mm. as good decisions. So there's things that I probably didn't do right or that type of thing, but I felt like it's made me the person that I am, you know? You have kids, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Did they come out like you, where they have this kind of sort of (laughs) preternaturally calm, placid? I know, it feels like it. It does. (laughs) They're great kids. They, I used, I've always had conversations with them about these things. And my daughter used to go, Dad, you know. Like, <laughs> yes. but, but that's but what she, I feel like. I'm like, yeah. how do you just so calmly go like, yeah, you know, it works out. When you would just describe so many things that, I mean, technically we're not working out. Like Bernie Mac, technically mm-hmm. that didn't work out. It did big right. picture, it worked out. And that's what we're talking mm-hmm. about now. But in that moment, you must, were you always, are you always calm? I think, well, it's not so much that. I think. There's a different word that I'll use and I'll call it clarity. You know, I've always tried to have clarity about like intention and that type of thing. So there was a certain time in my life where I decided to give up money. And what I mean by that was I wasn't guided by money, you know, and I didn't want to be, I didn't want money to have an influence on me emotionally and that sort of thing. And once I did that, I have never had to worry about money. Okay, Larry, you have to talk about the specifics of what that means because that's fascinating. What did that mean? How did you how did you actually implement that? Sure. It's about your relationship. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. Many people have a relationship with money where money is the alpha in the relationship. And money determines whether it's going to be a happy relationship or a bad relationship. And it's going to determine whether you're going to be a happy person or not a happy person. And to me, it it just was too much. (laughs) (laughs) I did not, I had to break off that relationship, you know, and I remember consciously doing it at the time. So love and hate to me are parts of the same emotion. Okay. Right. So many times when people try to diet and they say like, you know, they're not going to eat something. I feel like they don't shift the relationship as much as they try to trick themselves. So like, if you look at a cheeseburger, you can't say, I hate a cheeseburger. I'm not going to eat that. No, it's not true because, you know, you haven't really shifted anything. And the fact of the matter is people don't really like a cheeseburger. They really are in a relationship with a cheeseburger. Like they really want to fuck a cheeseburger. Like, (laughs) because no, because when you think about it, when you go, do you, do you want a cheeseburger? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, what, do you, what do you think very, about cheeseburgers? It's very physical. Oh. It's very carnal. Yeah. Oh, man. Or what do you think of chocolate? Chocolate's fantastic. Mm. Like, you want to fuck with chocolate. It's, the way to break the relationship is not say that you hate it, is to be indifferent. Because indifference breaks up 
things the most. If you're indifferent to a child, it's much more effective than uh, hating a child. Even. Yeah. Indifference is a killer. So yeah. I have to be indifferent to the effect money has in my life, not try to act like it doesn't mean anything right. because it does mean something and not act like it means everything because that's unrealistic, realistic right. too. I have to be indifferent to it. What was you know? your money situation when you reached Just that? like anybody. It, just trying to make it all the time and mm-hmm. trying to pay your bills, hoping a gig comes in. At the time, I was doing stand-up, hoping I get a gig at a certain time. Oh, am I going to pay for this? And then I thought, I'm tired of this. I can't take this anymore. Stop worrying about it. And anytime I was in a big money need of something, the right thing would come along and because I'm working towards something, you know, here's what I'm talking about. Why spend all that emotional capital on that? You know, there's only so much I can control about it and so much I can't. Why spend because my emotional capital on freedom, that? Because money is freedom. Because money is and money. But is, why am I uh, spending my emotional capital on it is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I can use my intellectual capital on it, which doesn't rob me of anything emotionally. So my intellectual capital is better spent on money. So now I'm a little distant from it because I don't want to be emotionally connected to money. I want to be distant from it. I want to be indifferent. I want to say, okay, money, I'm not going to work for you. You're going to work for me. Let's, let's figure out how we're going to do that. Okay. So, and by the way, is a very powerful distinction. Don't work for your money. Make your money work for you. But how do you do this? You right. say it like it's just so easy to do. That it's very, that's well, really hard. Yeah, it's having clarity over it. You do not make your best decisions if the emotions are the thing that are guiding you. You might, they may feel right, but you won't know that. Right. You can make better decisions when you have distance emotionally from something and you can view it a little more coldly. That's why your friends can tell you about a bad relationship sooner than you can because you're too emotionally invested. And they always say, yeah, I never trusted that guy. Motherfucker, how come you didn't say anything? <laughs> uh, because you were really in it. <laughs> you know Why? Because they don't have, they're not emotionally invested in it. So how did you get the distance? By deciding to do it, first of all. So for okay, instance, all right. and th- it's just a relationship. It's not necessarily actions as much as relationship, you know? So if something, if, if I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent, am I sad? Am I panicked? Am I desperate? No. Why should I be emotional about this? Rather, I'm planning, I'm creating scenarios, I'm creating what ifs, I'm creating this, I'm looking for something here, and I'm doing that. I'm on this area, not this area. Because I could easily be in this area, and why should I be spending all that emotional capital on on that? It doesn't make sense. Because it makes you feel like, um, I feel like I'm in therapy right now. Because when (laughs) you're spending the emotional capital, it makes you Mm -hmm. feel like you're doing something. And I know you're not. My brain... The emotions that are in that are better served, maybe showing love to someone in a relationship. How about that? <laughs> you know, maybe putting that into script writing. How about that? Maybe using that in the passion of my writing of jokes. How about that? You know, but why should I have it wrapped up in something that primarily in some ways you can't control, in some ways you can, but it's, it's always going to be there. Money's always going to be an issue. So why should I lock my emotional capital in there? It doesn't make sense. Julie, what's your actual position on this? Because I'm, and I'm surprised, we've never actually had this conversation. My I know you grew up with blown. money. I grew up I with know money. that you I earned not. a lot of money. See, and I did not. I grew up at a time, at a certain point, we had nothing. So it doesn't scare me to have nothing. I grew up with money and therefore, like anything that you get, you have when you're younger, you've got a tortured relationship with it. My dad will still say, the golden rule, he who has the gold makes the rules. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I get it. Freedom. That is freedom. You're telling me. And it was also clear to me that 
they, my parents paid for high school, college, and then mm-hmm. they said, go, go. We've given you an education. We've given you everything right. you need to get out there. And I chose to uh, live in a shitty, shitty, shitty studio apartment overlooking like the, the interior right. window with a boyfriend that they were not fond of and wait tables because I want to be an actor. And they didn't come and bail me out or anything. They let me, they let me do that because, and I'm very happy about that. But it was always super important to me to be financially independent. That was such a marker of success that I would not need right. anybody. And Julie, I, I was exactly the same in terms of that. So I wanted financial independence and success. Right. And I feel, and I feel the same way as you do. I knew it would give me a certain freedom. Yes. I just didn't have an emotional relationship with it. I had an intellectual relationship with it. So, so all of those things you talked about were goals of mine of having certain amount of money, like doing it in certain ways and being smart about it. I just decided I didn't want that dictating, you know, how I felt about things, you know, it doesn't but make how, sense. Uh, have you always been somebody that can tell, that can have that conversation with yourself? Because there's the theory that you can't get out of the problem with the same head that got you into it. So one mm-hmm. day you're Larry saying, I don't like this relationship, mm-hmm. but, but it's all in your own head. And you can flip that switch for yourself and say, so therefore I'm not having it anymore. Well, I guess it sounds that simple, but I, I'm a person who's always been curious. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be a scientist, you know, so I kind of have the scientific mind. So a lot of it comes from reading. So I'll read about something that somebody did or that type of thing. And then I get inspired by that. I go, oh, let me try that. That sounds great. So I didn't come up with this idea on my own. It came from reading. Um, at that time, I was reading a lot of inspirational material. Remember, I had done sales door to door and I kept mm-hmm. reading a lot of that type of material, how to lift yourself up from this, how to do this, you know, everything from Zig Ziglar to Successful Secrets to Khalil Gibran, all of those types of things. I was filling my head with how to be successful, how to have peace, how to these things. So I was doing research on that, you could say. So I didn't come to it. I, it wasn't like I was this wise person came to my own. I did it as a strategy of saying, oh, you know, what if I did money like this and and disassociated it from me in this way and just thought of it in this way, you know? And it came from doing all that work, which I continue to do in different ways. I'm always, you know, I love reading up on how people did certain things and all that. Does the brain do something? I mean, you, you said you had a science background. It's, to me, all I can think of is addiction. Like, you mm-hmm. go, for somebody to decide that, they, that they're not going to drink or they're not going to do drugs mm-hmm. or they're going to get out of a toxic relationship that's really addictive, mm-hmm. yeah. then... How do you, that part of your brain that goes, well, but it makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. There are changes in your neuro, neural pathways mm-hmm. that have to happen so that you stop craving that thing. How did you do that with money? Well, I didn't have an addict's relationship to it. Okay. You know. <laughs> I don't understand. I'm like, yeah. we all, everybody has an addict's relationship with money. Don't yeah. We? So, and you're like, no. <laughs> no. no, Julie, you're all no. alone. I'm like, oh no. So I'm more... I don't have an addict's personality. I have a survivalist personality. So me, I'm looking for, you know, the lifeboat, you know, <laughs> looking for, you know, how do I come out of here alive type of thing? You know, how do I save myself? You know, these types of things. I don't have an addict's personality where I'm trying to rescue right. myself from something or try to change something. Like drugs are always done around me and say, hey, man, you want something? No, I'm good. You know, because I never trusted myself to be able to handle drugs in a way that would have been responsible. I probably would have been the 
terrible and, 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 you know, might not have been the worst thing for me. And I saw it destroy a lot of people around me. It's just, it's just not me, you know. What do you think of this, Chad? Because we talk about money a lot, and he has a whole other um, podcast called Direct Deposit that's excellent. Yeah, I mean, the logline is what happens when Black people get rich. It's an exploration of basically from the first step, which is like when you're trying to make money, however you're trying to do it, mm-hmm. all the way through to the end. And it mm-hmm. brings in different voices vo- on it, um, Gab Union's on it, like people who have kind of gone through the whole rigmarole of it. And mm-hmm. I, what I was just struck by Julie was you said your dad said the golden rule is he or she who who has he who has the gold makes the rules Mm -hmm. and then you said that's freedom and that sounds like power and control to me but that's not how I would define freedom and I'm I'm curious about that the way that he said it he who has the gold makes the rules that does make it sound like power but for me it was freedom because you don't if you have the gold you don't have to listen to the other guy with the gold and I think that was a very, it feels like that's very personal. I mean, I feel that way as well, but it, it feels like that was very personal in that you didn't want your parents telling you what to do. So you made, yeah. so you had to make your own money. Yeah. Correct. Correct. And that's fair. And that, I think that that is, that's true and fair and mm-hmm. right in this world. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of the current generation or maybe one of these generations, I feel like they've kind of slept on the idea of economic freedom, you know, and they're more into economic justice, you know. I think that they don't have any idea though. Like right now, like I look at my kids, how are they going to be able to afford the world right now? It's, you're right. It's unjust. I I think a lot of people have uh, given up. Yeah. I think a lot of people have given up on the idea. But you know, they don't realize, and a lot of it is recency bias. You know, they don't realize that money concerns have, (laughs) have always been around. You know, I mean, hello, kids of the Depression. I remember my daughter telling me about, man, my generation, you know, we were kids. It was 9-11, you know, and then that economic collapse and that type of thing. I said, I said, yeah, that's interesting. I know that's bad. I said, when I was three, the president of the United States was assassinated. Let's see. <laughs> what happened? Uh, <laughs> that was three. Okay, what else happened? <laughs> but there was a there was, was assassinated. Long- I know, but there was a huge period where it was expected right. post-World War II mm-hmm. to fairly recently that the expectation was your life would be better than your parents. I have always felt, probably since I was three years old, that I got to get rich. And mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that a toxic relationship? I'm trying to relieve myself a little bit of the pressure that that feeling brings, but mm-hmm. it just feels like my job. Like, it feels like I have a shot, so I got to do it. And let me ask this. What are you doing to get rich? Are you doing something to get rich or are you doing something because it brings you fulfillment? Which one? Well, I think I'm doing something because it brings me fulfillment. Okay, and I so think, you're not so you're not doing something to get rich. But here but occasionally Wait, that's that's that's, <laughs> that's true. Uh, that's that this, much this is what true. I mean about clarity. You know, if you're doing something to get rich and it wasn't happening, that'd be different. But you're not doing something to get rich. You're doing something to have fulfillment. So that is you, true, you want but I, you want rich to be a byproduct of it. I do, but I still, <laughs> I still fuck it up. Like I still will do a job here and there. I'll, I'll do a thing. I'll laugh at a joke that's not funny. Like trying to, but trying but to get the dollar. Those, that's not trying to get the dollar. That's trying to have a career of writing jokes. Do you see the distinction? I think so. No, but there are many more effective ways of getting the dollars. What I'm saying, like, would you, would you consider so. joke writing? The most effective way of making money. <laughs> um, nah, <laughs> definitely okay. not. <laughs> like, I remember we were scouting for locations once, Julie, 
we were in Beverly Hills and we were looking at some of these houses. We we're like, man, look at this place. Who lives here? And we would ask nine times out of 10, you know, they would say dentist. I'm like, dentist? <laughs> no. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. what is going on with dentist out there? You know? So we could all have gone to dental school and a dental school and had like a solid, dependable <laughs> income for the rest of our lives yes, instead of 100%. this crazy roller coaster we're on. That's I'm true. just saying, if somebody says, I want to be rich and say, well, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing this. Well, you said you're doing that to be happy, <laughs> not to be rich. Like, the, I'm just talking about clarity. What exactly, what are your actions? You know, like, because there are specific actions that are specific money-making actions. Yes. And then there are specific actions, which are more fulfilling emotional actions. Right? I could have been an investment banker, but I don't think mm. I would have Wait. been- Good enough. You said you wanted to be rich. I know, but I I don't think I would have been (laughs) able to do it because I wouldn't. I just I wouldn't love it enough to be able to do it well enough to stay rich. Why love it? I mean, (laughs) sometimes you could be good at something and have as your hobby the thing that you love. It's like doing something for a living that you love is kind of a modern idea, you know. Right. It used to be people just worked, and then they had hobbies, you know, because the thing that gave them fulfillment was actually feeding their family, you know. Right. Not the job didn't have to give them fulfillment, you know, but feeding right. your family gave them fulfillment. If I want to completely forfeit the idea of being led by money, because I feel like I'm kind of in the murky middle a little bit. I want to do what you did. I want to flip the switch. So are you saying the thing to do is to realize that actually I'm already moving down that path? You or, have to have clarity about it. Okay. If you say you I need want, to sit with it. If you want to make a lot of money and you don't want to be emotionally connected to it, then there's certain realities you have to acknowledge about that. One reality is that what you're doing for a living may not lead to that thing that you want financially. And mm-hmm. if that's the case, what can lead to that if that's what you want? And being clear about those things, you know, because there may be different paths. It may, it may be, that may be an overlap, but it may not. Unless you discover that's not something you're really that interested in. And if it happens as a result of this, that would be great. But if it doesn't, you'd be okay living with that. Yeah. You have to decide that for yourself if that's the case. You know? I think the truth is I think about it and talk about it more than I care about it in, in, in earnest. I do. One of the easiest times of my life was when I didn't have any money. When I was waiting mm-hmm. tables in New York and going on a thousand auditions a week. And just and I had so many jobs. I was reading scripts. I modeled men's <laughs> clothing. I labeled teacups. I did the craziest shit for a dollar. When you're like a junkie, though, and you know that you just need what you have to do that day is make your rent. It, you don't have to make a lot of high-level decisions. Right. You're not choosing like, oh, I shouldn't take this job. You know, it's kind of cheesy and they want me to wear a bikini. And it's sort of, you're like, I'll take it. I don't care. Mm-hmm. And it, it's simpler. It's much right. harder when you actually have some money in the bank and you have to make choices. And then you're mm-hmm. like, now I, now I have to m- make decisions that define kind of who I am. Mm-hmm. But when I was a money junkie and I was poor, it was easier. And mm-hmm. I think that, Chad, that's you're in the murky middle. You're not just getting through the day yeah, and I'm make your rent. I'm comfortable. Right. I, make, I make what, you know, like upper com- middle class people in my age bracket make. And now right. it's like, I have to decide. Now you got to make decisions. Now I got to decide, do I really want to be rich? Or do, or do I, like, I like what I do. I like that I get to make those decisions every day. But I told myself a story my whole life that I was going to try to get wealthy. 
And now I'm like, do I, am I actually going to try to do that? One thing that I've developed over the years is this philosophy I call creation, you know, and the purpose of creation is to help give you clarity, especially like somebody in your position. And the thing we don't have the most clarity over is what I, is what I want that phrase, you know? Mm. And so this philosophy that I have, it's counterintuitive. It goes against what we think are cultural norms and that sort of thing and gets you thinking a certain way. And here's what I've come up with. Your actions always tell you what you want, okay? Mm. And if you think you want something that your actions don't support, you're actually only interested in that. Mm -hmm. And so the way that you get clarity is you don't make a distinction between what you want and you don't want. You make a distinction between what you want and what you're merely interested in. And so you may be interested in being rich, but you really want to do what your actions are currently doing. But it feels like the same thing because they're both wrapped up in feelings. But when you take feelings out of it, once again, this is kind of a theme with me, right? Once you take feelings out of it and you look where are the actions showing up, that represents what you want. And when Julie talks about trying to make it as an actor, all of her actions pointed to that thing of what she wanted, whether it was waiting tables, all that stuff. All those actions are pouring into that life of wanting to be an actor, right? They're all pouring into that. You know, if she was working at a plant somewhere in Alaska, you know, <laughs> or whatever, yeah. maybe she was making money, but she wasn't in New York where she could get auditions. You right. know, that's, those are different actions. She just, those actions are, I just want to make some money and I don't care where I'm going or wherever, you know, maybe mm -hmm. I'll give it up. So your, your actions will tell you what you want. You know, your mm -hmm. actions will always tell you. If you're ever confused about it, look at your actions. Your actions will tell you what you want. Then. Once you know that, now you have a little clarity and say, do, do I want to continue to want that? <laughs> <laughs> the mega quit of all fucking quits, Larry Wilmore, money. I mean, I, like his relationship to money. Relationship. You blow my mind and you are my king. I love you. Oh. But you talk about this moment always, mm -hmm. you go, well, you take your emotions out. Mm -hmm. As if like, oh, you unscrew mm -hmm. your left leg and you leave it outside for a week. How do you just take your emotions out? It's too painful to have those emotions connected with something as mercurial as money. I mean, it's why have that? I would rather have, like I said, my emotions wrapped up in something like my career. You know, I would too. I would and, love to make choices about my emotions. But sometimes, more often than not, I feel like I am riding a wild horse called emotion and I, it cannot be tamed. Yeah, but you can. You'd be surprised that you can. Look at a thing that you don't have that relationship with it. What do you don't? What do you not have a relationship like that? Cars. Why not? I just could give a shit. I don't care what I drive. <laughs> I don't care at all. Why? You have a nice car, I'd, Julie. I just want to say. I that. don't give a shit. I, I mean, <laughs> by the way, this, the last time you've seen it, it has ten more dings and is filled with dirt. I don't care. Why, why don't? Why? Why don't I care? Ooh, that's hard to answer. Why don't you care? Why aren't you emotionally wrapped up in your cars? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Mm -hmm. I just uh, don't care. You don't really care about clothes either. No, I don't care about that. I don't like you look nice, cars. but you don't care about them. No. Uh, for some people, cars and clothes are a representation of them. And they're very much, like especially clothes, they're very much emotionally connected to that representation of themselves because they think people will judge them because of it and that sort of thing. So you could see someone who might be emotionally attached to sure. that representation of them and feel bad if they're, like they're ashamed if they got to take a bus or something, if they don't have a car, they're ashamed if they have to wear certain clothes or that sort of thing, you right. know, or, or it makes them feel good to, to have something in a way that may not make another person feel good. That's a relationship. Mm-hmm. 
So it's more about examining, you know, do I want this relationship? <laughs> if you feel like, yeah, this relationship, it's got its ups and downs, but I'm not mad at it. I'll keep this relationship. Fine. Keep it. Just know that it may drive you crazy or whatever. But if you don't want to have the relationship, the way that you break it, like I said, is you don't try to trick yourself is you mm. practice indifference, indifference to it. Instead of saying, uh, well, I can say, Larry, do you want that cheeseburger? Instead of going, no, I don't want it. Because if I say it like that, that means I still want to fuck it, right? <laughs> no, I don't want that cheeseburger. You go, nah. I mean, this man is a fucking guru. <laughs> Are you like, Chad, it's, I've never, it's not, Chad is like <laughs> gripping the, we're both yeah. like just it's dying. It's not the circumstance, it's the clarity. You don't have clarity. You're, you're operating what I call survival. When you operate in survival, what happens is you form an opinion about something and you spend your time collecting evidence for the opinion. Mm-hmm. When you operate out of creation, you discover the truth about something and you spend more time just in that continual abundance of discovery. You know, you're operating out of survival. Also, when you have a decision to make, any way you go is going to create a dilemma. When you're operating out of creation, when you have a decision, any decision you make is going to create a path. There's no dilemma, you know. The one you're supposed to do, operating out of creation. <laughs> Yes. You you discover the truth about something. Yes. And then you allow that truth to reveal. You spend your time in continual abundance of discovery. So look at relationships. When you first start, this is a crude example. When you first start a relationship, you're in creation. You're making discoveries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yes. When, when you're ending relationships, you're in survival. You're collecting mm. evidence. You know, mm. all you're doing is collecting evidence. You already have, you have formed an opinion about something Damn. and you're collecting evidence. So that gives you a real life example of what the difference feels like. And you're much freer in creation than you are in survival. Survival, you can be productive in survival, but I don't believe you can be finding happiness and fulfillment in survival. I believe you can find it through creation where you're in discovery of something. I mean, like I'm writing this down, even though it's our podcast and I have access to this (laughs) completely, but I don't, I have no other way to express. Survival and creation. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Julie, we were going to do all these stories when we were working together. We didn't Fuck, have a chance oh, to explore I'm this coming, stuff. I'm coming to park. <laughs> I'm coming to live in your house. This is the best part about doing a podcast uh, is finding out the people that you thought you knew and liked or like, there's like, wait, let me just open the lid. Oh my God, it's a fucking where? rainbow of skittles <laughs> and joy or whatever. You're like, uh, this is this is amazing. I, I feel like my brain is going to explode in a great way. I feel like I am going to wake up in the middle of the night thinking about <laughs> that la- that very last bit. That's where I always, if I get fucked up trying to write something or make mm. something, I always get fucked up when I'm trying to back I'm trying to backdoor my way into the thing that I wanted it to be at the beginning instead, instead of, of finding survival. instead of the discovery yeah You're collecting instead of the abundance of, yeah yeah there's nothing to learn in survival you already know it. it's so it's boring it's there's so nothing boring. to learn yeah exactly but it, mm. it's seductive because it can be productive you know yeah it makes me feel powerful because of course I already know where it's going I all I got to do is just line up these breadcrumbs to the ending what makes you feel more powerful than validation of something that you know? That's yeah. how politics operates out of survival now. You mm-hmm. know, it's all collecting evidence for opinions rather mm-hmm. than, you know, making discoveries about something and acknowledging that maybe you don't have the answers. Maybe the answers to be found outside of yourself somewhere else. Maybe the answers to be found through collaboration, you know, through pulling away something. Sometimes that can be a little painful. Sometimes it could be joyous. There's a lot of things it could be. Survival, rarely pain in survival. 
it just always feels good because <laughs> you're acknowledging Because you're just something. collecting the evidence that makes you feel exactly. good about the way that you're doing Why things. wouldn't that feel great? Yeah. Just, I mean, you're just, you're blowing my mind. Thank you, Julie. Thank Thanks, you. Chad. It's so nice Thank talking you. to you guys. Now I have an idea. I got to do a pod based on this kind of stuff then, I guess. Yeah. Larry. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much, you. you guys. Great talk. Oh, Thank wow. You.